You're listening to the Liam Photography Podcast. Greetings, everybody. You're listening to the Liam Photography Podcast. I'm your host, Liam Douglas, and this is episode 52. I want to take a moment to thank all of my listeners for subscribing, rating, and reviewing in iTunes, Google Play, or anywhere else you might happen to be listening to this show each week, which now, as of yesterday, includes iHeartRadio. So the Liam Photography Podcast is now officially on iHeartRadio. You can catch the show on there if that is the audio content system that you prefer to use, and it is the last of the major audio content suppliers or providers for the show to get added to. So now we are on all of the big ones, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Pandora, Radio.com, all the biggies the show is on, and you can listen to the show each week on any of those platforms and many others that are maybe smaller, less popular, but automatically pull their podcast content feeds from the larger providers, and there are some of those out there. I don't know the names of all of them off the top of my head, and I don't want to bore you with all of that. Now, I did want to also, before we get into my interview this week with John Harvell, who is a master of off-camera flash, I wanted to also remind all of the listeners to enter the January 2020 giveaway that I am having on the show. Now, if you did not catch up with episode 52 last week, the one-year anniversary episode where I first mentioned the current contest, then you can go back and listen to that episode, or you can just continue listening on this episode. Uh, I'll give you the high level of the contest, and if you want, you can go back and listen to episode 52 to get a little more details. But basically, in this contest, which is running from January 2nd to February 2nd, 2020, uh, one lucky winner will be chosen on February 3rd, 2020 to win their choice of the Edelkron Flex Tilt Head 3D, the Skater 3D, or the Pocket Shot 3D. Now, if you're not sure what I'm talking about, these are all different types of camera mount systems. The flex tilt head is exactly that. It would mount on your tripod or monopod and give you flexing and tilting. The Skater 3D is uh, basically like a miniature dolly for your camera for like shooting video. It uh, doesn't require any kind of tracking because it has its own wheels. And then the Pocket Shot 3D is a multi-use carrying system for your camera. It's used primarily by folks that are shooting video and you can you can move it into different configurations. It has flexible joints and everything. So you can use it in a variety of different uh, functions or capabilities when you're shooting your video footage. So if you would like to enter the contest or uh, see what the three prizes you'll have to choose from look like, you can check out the show notes for this episode. You can also head on over to the Liam Photography Podcast Facebook group and request to join. The only uh, thing you have to do in order to join is answer one security question. That is, who is the host of the show? And you can put Liam or Liam Douglas. Either one will get you in. 
And then look at the very top, pinned to the top of the group once you're in, is the official link to enter the 2020 contest. All right, now I'm not going to bore you with a whole bunch of other things. I want to go ahead and jump right into my talk with John Harvell on off-camera flash. Now, this was a, a topic I had requested a few different times for members of the Facebook group to uh, give me questions or problems they had with their photography, something that they wanted to hear covered on the show uh, because they didn't know about it or they weren't as strong into it as they wanted to be. And one of the members did say that she would like uh, the subject of off-camera flash covered. And I figured John Harvell, even though he was on the show once last year, I thought it'd be great to bring him back. He was one of my classmates at the Art Institute of Pittsburgh Online Division, and he has really, really mastered his use of off-camera flash. So let's get into this right now. All right, so I'm joined now by John Harvell, who is in uh, on the West Coast. I'm not sure if he's actually in California right now or somewhere else, but that's where he lives. And he is the person I'm going to be talking to this week about off-camera flash. So, John, welcome back to the show. This is your second time here, and it's exciting to have you on here again. Well, thank you. I'm glad to be back. Yeah, the last episode uh, that we did together was really popular. Uh, it's gotten quite a few listens. Uh, it's, I think, currently the fourth, fourth or fifth most listened to episode. So it did really well. And um, when uh, one of the members in the Facebook group said that she wanted a topic that she would like to hear covered was off-camera flash, I thought you'd be the perfect guy for this episode. I do off-camera flash. I don't do it a lot. Um, just because I don't do a lot of portrait work, I use my, my flash and my monolights and stuff like that more for studio photography for still, uh, still lifes and stuff like that, product stuff. Um, so I don't use it as, as much as you do. I know you've been doing a lot of work with off-camera flash. And I believe this was something that you taught yourself, but we'll get into that in a minute. So let's go ahead and feel free to share with my listeners what you've been doing, uh, what you've been working on since the last time you were on the show, any projects and stuff like that. I know you had that car show that you were going to. It was a combination car and fashion show. So feel free to fill us in on how that was and, and what you got to do with that, as well as anything else you're working on. Oh, um, yeah, I went to LA Fashion Week. Uh, it was held at the Peterson's Museum down in Culver City in LA. Uh, I was able to get the backstage pass. Uh, I went out there, I shot. Uh, they, they had this huge studio set up by Sammy that's there. Uh, but, you know, they, they had a couple photographers that had that area, and I seen this um, black, black backdrop. Um, curtain thing and I decided to shoot low-key shots on it. It was, it was um, pretty interesting. Uh, it was really fun. Uh, a lot of work. But, but it was really, really pretty cool now, thing to do. What kind of backdrop was it? It was just a black curtain. Oh, okay. And, and I was like, you know what? I could do a I could do a uh, a one light setup low-key with a high output reflector. And, and really uh, kill the ambient that was there, and use that use the black curtain as a just as a background. Oh, okay, yeah, that would work great. And now let me ask you real quick, because you mentioned you used a re used a reflector. What color reflector were you using for that? 
I was just using a high output um, silver inside reflector. Oh, okay. I, the reason why I asked, and this is just a curiosity thing, is I, I listen to a few other uh, photography podcasts, and I, I've heard on one of the other shows, one of the, they were doing, uh, they were talking about uh, uh, portrait photography, and the subject came up of reflectors, and he was like, "Yeah, they're absolutely worthless. The only the only part of a five on one reflector that's any good is the translucent white part, because you can use that to soften light. You know, if you're doing an outdoor portrait shoot using natural daylight." You can, I re, he recommended that you get the 40 by 60 inch, the oval shaped one. So you, if you're by yourself, don't have an assistant, you could hold it in one hand up in the, up above your subject to soften the sunlight coming down on them and then still shoot with your camera in the other hand or on the tripod, you know, operate the camera with the other hand. And he was like, oh yeah, the silver and the gold reflectors are absolutely useless. And I was like, well, there's gotta be somebody that uses the silver and gold or they wouldn't sell it as a set. Yeah, that guy sounds like an idiot. Because, you know, the gold ones, you would want to use at sunset when, uh, you know, the sun is going down to get that nice golden warm light. Um, me, personally, I like silver reflectors because, you know, I'm more of a highlight person. I like strong highlights. You know, if you see all my images, they're really, really bold on highlights. Um, the translucent one, I don't use at all because uh, personally, myself, I I shoot with undiffused lighting majority of the times. Sometimes I will diffuse lighting, but but 90% of the time I shoot everything like in a beauty dish. So if I'm using a 34 inch um, parabolic and it'll, I'll have a beauty dish plate in there and I won't diffuse it. And I just run everything like a beauty dish because I want that, that strong contrast and highlights oh okay yeah I, uh, I follow what you're talking about yeah absolutely yeah I, i'm completely different with lighting than a lot of people are and how i set up lighting too well there's and there's nothing wrong with that there are plenty of people that are that are really good have really mastered their lighting with photography and they all have their unique style. So there's not, I mean, there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. I've looked at plenty of your work and your work's amazing. So you obviously know what you're doing with your lighting. Yeah. Okay. So, um, okay. So we talked a little bit about your time at the LA fashion week. What else have you been working on since the last time you were on the show? Feel free to talk about any, any projects, you know, that aren't secret, you know, like something that you're, you're comfortable sharing. Uh, oh. But this this way you could tell my uh, the audience a little bit more about what you've been doing since the last time you were on here. Um, I shot Bernadette Marcias at Bombay Beach, um, and that was fun. Uh, she was she's really cool. She she was on um, she was on television and and she was also on Solon TV as the host. She's a, a tattoo model. Oh, okay. Uh, I, I shot, and let's see, what else have I done? Uh, I went down to to uh, New Orleans, and I, I shot there, San Antonio. Uh, I just, you know, just shooting all different people. I'm, I mainly do a lot of fitness and a lot of um, tattoo artists, because I, I, I shoot for a tattoo partner, so... Yeah, I remember we talked about that last time, and and I had been looking through some of your photos, and you had some really fantastic photos that you had done at, at a tattoo shop. 
And uh, I'm back on your website now. Boy, you've added a lot more content. Um, a lot more content to your website. This is amazing. It's really great. Your website looks really, really cool. Oh, thank you. Yeah, and you've got some fantastic images on there, especially the tattoo stuff. Really nice. Um, the modeling work is really great. Now, see, this is what I'm talking about. This is why I wanted you to come on to talk about off-camera flash because, you know, looking through your modeling work and, and the shoots that you've done in the tattoo parlor, I mean, your lighting is just fantastic in these images. It's just really, I mean, you really, really have mastered using your off-camera lighting. You've done a fantastic job of it, I must say. Yeah, it, you know, you know, I, I think what really helped me out on lighting is doing what everyone else is not doing. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, might, it might sound weird. No, no, no. Because, um, you know, I, I set up lighting like, um, let me see. I'll, I'll go on my website really quick. And, and we can yeah, dissect some images. It might be easier so I can visualize what yep. I'm talking about. And now, listeners, uh, as you listen to this episode, John and I are, of course, recording this live as we're talking to each other. I have, uh, I'll have the link to his photography website in the show notes. It's uh, harvellsphotography.com. And he's got some really amazing work on here. Okay, uh, I'll click on the modeling link. And um, go ahead and let me know what image you want to look at. Well, the the first one that I'm really intrigued by, um, and I hope my monitors, I'm not, I'm not sure because I don't have quite as high resolution on the Mac Mini in my studio as I do on my iMac. It's a 27-inch monitor, but um, the first image that I'm really intrigued by is the, I can't tell, I think it's the second image in the top row. Uh, the oh. mo the model's in a red mini dress, and she's got her hand on a wall that's got, like, a really beautiful, I guess you'd call it graffiti art. I mean, it's not standard graffiti. It's street art of some kind. And yeah. and she's got her right hand up, looks like up by her ear, like she's listening to something. Oh, yeah, that's that's all Miss Bernadette. Oh, okay. That's a fantastic image. Now, let me ask you, for for this particular kind of shot, how did you set up your lighting to get the the beautiful detail and just the right amount of light on her face and and basically her face her whole upper body mostly um from the waist up you've got really really perfect lighting on that and then from the waist down it's darker but it's just it's a perfect blending of the two different lighting two different types of lighting you got there where it's brighter at the top and darker at the bottom but I mean, everything in the image is, is, you know, the composition is fantastic. The focus is tack sharp. And I really love the way the lighting blends just as it goes up her body, you know, from her sh the bottom of her shoes where it's darker and the sidewalk she's standing on. And then as you go up her legs and up the rest of her body, there's more and more light. And the light is beautifully controlled. Now, how did you accomplish that one? Okay. This this one's done with, with two lights. and, and and one light was camera left, uh, a 36-inch or 34-inch softbox as a beauty dish uh, with just a beauty plate on the inside of it. And it was feathered. Uh, it was feathered. It, it wasn't pointing directly at her. So I feathered it uh, 
off a little bit. So what you're seeing is is the if you look at the shadows where her feet is going up the wall, it's because the the spread of light from the from the thirty from the thirty four inch softbox, uh, you know, it it just feathered right there and and then it it left enough shadow on her cheek and running down her body because you know I'm a shadows and highlights person, and and that's what caused that. Then I I wanted to add a little separation from her and actual the background, and to achieve that, that's why it has you know you could bouquet something, and but it still kind of looks muddled sometimes. So what I did is I took a I took a a ten inch high output reflector, and it's actually placed behind her where the wall is, and and then it it, it was kind of feathered off a little bit, so. So it kind of added just it, it it didn't add a rim light, but it added separation light. Yeah, I see that. Now you actually had the reflector behind her in the shot. Uh, it, it's it's where the wall is, but behind that wall, so you can't really see it. Yeah, cause that's what I was gonna say. I'm like, I can't see the reflector anywhere in the shot. So bravo on getting the lighting the way you want it with the reflector and keeping the reflector out of the shot because I don't see it there anywhere. And the light just turned out fantastic on that shot. And I really love, so you've got great separation here because you've got her, you know, she's tack sharp in the shot because she's the subject of the shot. And then the street art on the wall behind her, closest to her hand, her left hand that's on the wall, that's tack sharp as well. And then as you move back behind her down the wall, you get a little more, you know, out of focus blur, the bokeh, only without bokeh lights or anything. And then, of course, the rest of the farther background where there's trees and stuff like that back way back behind her in the wall is, you know, you got that creamy bokeh going on where everything back there is out of focus. So it's not distracting. It's not detracting from her and that street art that she's standing in front of. Yeah. Yeah, because by my when I seen the when I seen the face. And then I seen Bernadette's dress, and I, I looked at it, the color of her dress, and in the face, I just like, oh, you know what? This is just a perfect area what she was wearing, and, and everything. It just came because what I do is I visualize prior to to taking the picture of what I want, and I and and I set up the lighting to to my vision what I wanted, and. And that's and this is what we created. Yeah, it's fantastic. I mean, that that is a really great shot, and the lighting is phenomenal on that. And I see you've got the next one over um, is another shot of her. She's wearing a different outfit. Um, she's got a white top. That look, I don't know if I've got the correct terminology because I'm a guy and, I, and we're, I'm stupid when it comes to clothes. But it looks like she's wearing a white top that's got, I guess, like spaghetti straps on the shoulders. And blue yeah. jeans, and she's got a. It looks like a black, either denim. I can't quite tell if it's denim or leather jacket in her hand. That's got pink flowers on the back, pink roses on the back of it. Uh, I think it's a. I think it's vegan leather. Oh, okay. Or um, jacket from Australia. Uh, I thought it was leather. I wasn't one hundred percent certain, but I thought it did. It did look like leather, especially where I could see the stitching. I thought that looked like leather fabric. Now this one again, fantastic. You've got great light. You've got her looking to her left, and that's where the the 
the brighter light is and that coming from that direction then of course it falls off as it crosses her body and she's again standing in front of what looks like some street art on a wall uh, but this one's looks like it's a little bit more of a darker area than the first shot in the red dress but you, you've again got a perfect blending of your light from one side as it transitions from one side of her body to the other. Your, your shift in shadows and highlights is just fantastic. Now, how did you set this one up? Was this also a two-light setup, or were you able to do this one with one? Yes, it was a two-light setup. Um, majority of my lighting is always with two-light. Uh, you know, some people call it a rim light. Some people call it a hair light. Um, me personally, I use it as a separation light. Okay. Um, so same, same soft box setup. Um, you know, I had the soft box, the soft box was camera right, right next to me. And, and I went inside the building. This is Bombay beach, um, abandoned place, very famous place that is decrepit now. And I, I took the, um, the high output reflector and I went inside the building and then I, I shot it in there and just to give her enough rim on, you, you see on her arm and, and it was kind of like like directly to her on her right but but pushed off a little bit on her right so I could I could get a little spill of light on her from that and also use those the softbox to fit light on her, and but I wanted to illuminate some of the inside of that room too, so so you, in the back of the graffiti you'll be able to see some of that. But I didn't want it to be too distracting, where it took away from her. Yeah, exactly. And I'm, to me, you've got the perfect blending there. I mean, it's just the right amount of everything, so that nothing is detracting from her. I mean, she's definitely the focus. Your eyes go right to her in the frame. Um, in this shot, there's, there's, I don't see anything that would be distracting um, about the background that's there, the way the background is partially lighted. Uh, definitely does not take away from your primary subject. Now, let me ask you, just out of curiosity, and I don't want, I know it doesn't really technically matter as far as brands and stuff like that goes, but just out of curiosity, now, what kind of off-camera flash lights are you using for your work? I use Godox because I'm very rough on my equipment. And if I use pro photos, I would probably cry every day. <laughs> yeah. Cause they're so expensive. Yeah, that's it. You know, you got, you got to sell your kidney just to get a light set up. Uh, and I use cheetah stand soft boxes and light modifiers. Oh yeah. I do remember you mentioning cheetah stand when you were on the show the last time. So let me ask you, when you say you use Godox, now here's the next good, great question for you on that. Are you buying the Godox speed lights and using them off camera? Or are you actually buying their much more expensive battery operated mono lights? I use the mono lights from everything from an 8200 all the way to the 8600 Pro. Oh, okay. Cool. Uh, so I have, I have two 8200s. I have one 8400 Pro and one 8600 Pro. Oh, cool. Yeah, now I know a lot of people lately in the photography world have been moving over to Godox because their stuff is a lot more or a lot less expensive than like 
uh, most of your big brands out there, and, and I'm not talking just monolites, you know, they're a lot less expensive than Profoto. Uh, a lot of their stuff is less expensive than Paul C. Buffs, Alien Bees, and Digi Bees. But also their speed lights are just super high quality speed lights and a fraction of the cost of what you would pay for a Canon or a Nikon speed light, something like that. And I've actually started transitioning to Godox myself. I had uh, I had uh, different models, but I had five Canon speed lights and I had a couple of the Young News uh, because Young New has some really good speed lights as well. And they're even less expensive than Godox, but... What myself and a lot of the other photographers I talk to about off-camera lighting, what we've been noticing over the last about a year is Young News has been having some really weird issues from time to time with their speed lights where the wireless triggering doesn't work correctly. Um, you get it all configured the way it's supposed to be configured, and then you go to take the shot and the speed light never triggers. And then you're screwing around with the transmitter trying to figure out why it doesn't trigger, especially when you're using their transmitter. And it's still not triggering. So I know myself and Jeff Harmon, a lot of the several of the guys over on the Master Photography Podcast um, in the Master Photography Podcast Network, they've all transitioned either completely away from anything else and gone or whatever they had before and gone to Godox or they're in the process of, of transitioning. Now, the only thing I have theirs right now is I have, I think it's called the V860 Mark II. Um, and it's a great speed light. I paid 170, I, I paid 179 for it. And I use that for my everyday, you know, every day for my real estate photography. And the one thing I noticed that was interesting with the Godox, when I compared that speed light, which was, it's basically supposed to have the exact same functionality, uh, maybe a little more improved technology wise as my Canon 580 EX2 which for anybody who knows anything about speed lights knows that the 580 X2 was Ken's flagship speed light for quite a yeah. few years before they came out with the 600 RT. And I tried the 580 and the Godox side by side several times in the same, you know, I'd be at the same house using each one. And believe it or not, I was getting better light from the Godox that was $179 than from the 580 EX2, which originally when it was brand new, was like a $600 speed light. Well, because Godox, you know, the, the thing is, if you buy things from Godox, you know, you have uh, you have BMH photo and you have uh, Adorama, which is uh, Flashpoint Adorama. It's just a rebranded Godox. Uh, their quality consistency seems to be really good. You know, I know some people have problems with, with their stuff. Like uh, my 8400 Pro, I, I shot that thing in, in 117 degree weather and and, and even down to, to like 10 degrees out here. And what I found out is I had to take my battery and do some cleaning, some contacts and stuff like that. And it, it works like a champ. It, it fires consistently. I don't have no problems and issues with it. My 8600 Pro, I don't have no no problems and issues. I mean, unless you're rapid firing, like you're you're trying to go 20 frames a second and try to pop off flash, and then it's going to overheat. But but you know that's that's just you know ambient temperature and and heat problems. I mean, any flash is going to do that. Um, I I just see the value of Godox over Profoto. Um. Uh, is better 
uh, you know, if you if you're only buying lighting for for the main and and maybe because you spend two grand on a pro photo light and it breaks, you can send it off and and get it repaired and come back in two weeks. Then that's the added benefit. But I mean, I really haven't had no issues, and I drop my lights all the time. I'm probably the biggest person and clumsiest person when it comes down to lighting. So. So I know that if I break my light, then I, I will be able to buy a new one and get it replaced and really quick because of the price price point. But, you know, I, I think they're awesome lights and, and the modifiers I use with them, it, is, it gives me the lighting I want. And, and it's just really, really what, what I use and it works for me. I'm not saying it'll work for everyone, but it works for me. Yeah, and there's nothing wrong with that. And I know um, I was just listening earlier today to the most recent episode of the Master Photography Podcast. And every week at the end of the episode, they have a doodad section. You know, uh, usually it's fairly inexpensive things that are photography related that they have yeah. and they, they recommend for other folks. And the item that Jeff Harmon mentioned in today's episode was the Godox X1R dash C 2.4 gigahertz wireless flash trigger single receiver. Now, the nice thing about this is, is it from what he was saying, now he doesn't have one, but he knows several photographers and, and other hosts on that podcast that do have these. And the, he said, these things just work. And you have to get the one because they make the X1R in different de designations. Dash C means it's made for Canon cameras and you have yeah. the dash N for Nikon, so on and so forth. But he said, but this receiver is pretty much universal. It's a Godox wireless receiver, but it works beautifully with Godox speed lights, Canon speed lights, Young New speed lights, all kinds of different brands. And none of the none of his uh, uh, co-hosts on the show, who are all professional photographers that have been using this, have ever had problems with this receiver. It just seems to work with every kind of speed light. Oh, that's that's nice. See, yeah, and it's amazing because it's a forty dollar part. I mean, it's a forty dollar single receiver, which forty bucks. Yeah, you know, for some people it might be a lot of money, but to me, forty dollars for a wireless receiver to use your speed light off camera on a light stand or something is a really inexpensive price, especially when you compare it to some of the other uh, transmit receiver systems out there, uh, like Pocket Wizard and stuff like this. This is really inexpensive. And they say it just works. It's bulletproof. It works with every single type of speed light they've tested it with. I think they've tested it with like four or five different brands of speed lights. And it works flawlessly with every one of them, even when you mix and match them. So even if you're using, you know, you got two or three of these single receivers and you got one Canon speed light, one Godox and one Yong New, they will all work together seamlessly as if they were all the same brand. Yeah, I mean, Godox... They're, they're innovating and they keep on innovating. I mean, they're, 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 they're a company that's out there trying try and willing to compete against Profoto and Blind Color. And, you know, it, it's good to have gear that's out there that's, that's inexpensive because, you know, like me, I'm just a little photographer uh, trying to try grind away and, and get clients to shoot and everything else. And there's no way that I would be able to afford pro photo and, and go out there and create, and especially in locational environments like I do. 
it, you know, I would, I would be, I would be too scared because I go to the beach and shoot. I shoot in water <laughs> and everything else. You name it, I climb mountaintops. <laughs> so it, there's just no way I, I would, I would be so, so courageous with, with other types of light, especially, you know, when you're paying two thousand dollars for a light, you have to really start assessing because, you know, the quality of light, light is really light. I mean, I mean, people are going to debate saying light this this um, this stroke here provides better lighting. That stroke provides better lighting, but at the end of the day, light is light, and you might have to go into your light balance, and you might have to um, go in there and tweak your Kelvin values. But you know, reality, light is light. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, like you were saying, uh, you know, because I've, I've seen some of the guys that are really big, you know, like commercial product photographers like uh, Carl Taylor in the UK. Um, yeah. he, but he's obviously making, I would guess, probably seven figures with his studio because he, he does pretty much nothing but high end commercial work. Um, he flies all over the world doing shoots and he's shooting with, uh, you know, uh, $65,000 Hasselblad, their latest top of the line model. He's got all brawn color lights and soft boxes and all, you know, and I started just out of curiosity looking up all of his gear online. I'm like, holy cow, this guy spent more money on just his lighting equipment than my house cost. <laughs> it's crazy how expensive that stuff is. Just think, you get, you, you buy yourself a, a Ciro 800 and then, and then you get yourself a focus full of parabolic, parabolic, a focus full of para eighty eight, uh, with the with the focusing rod, and and right there you're already, you know, you're, what about eight thousand in just a light gear? Yeah. I mean, he has he has he has more money on his light stand than, than my my Sony R three and one thirty five. On yeah. My camera. <laughs> yeah, it's like, yeah, it's like I, I look at the I look at his YouTube videos when he's demonstrating a, a type of shoot in his studio there in the UK, and he's got a big building he uses for his studio. It looks like it's a warehouse, and it's got two levels or a level. Well, most of it's open, but then he's got an upstairs and part of it, which is where all the offices are, and all of his people that work for him, you know, doing whatever. That's where they all have their desks at and stuff like that, but. Yeah, it's like I was looking at it, some of his YouTube videos. And don't get me wrong, he's a fantastic photographer, super talented, really good at teaching other people, you know, on a YouTube video how to how to set up their lighting properly for different types of shots in the studio, especially. But it's like you said, you know, it's like I look at one of his videos and it's like, okay, yeah, he's got this light stand over here in the corner that he's not currently using, but it's over in the corner in the background. And I can tell from the gear he's got sitting on it, that's like a $10,000 light stand sitting there. Between the light stand and all the lighting he's got on it, he's got ten grand just in that one light stand, and he's got eight or ten of them running around, you know, sitting in different areas of his studio, and those are just the ones I can see in the video, you know. Yeah. So it's like, geez, he's got like eighty grand just in lighting, just in light stuff sitting on light stands in his studio. He's got eighty or a hundred thousand dollars there. Yeah, you know, I mean, when one day we all become famous like that, then we could do that, but. For right now, don't have to rock Godox. Well, see, I don't even think I'd do that. Even if I was making the kind of money he's making, I still couldn't see myself spending thousands of dollars for a single monolight. 
You know, because like you said, that thing falls, you're done. You're out a lot of money. And yeah, maybe, I don't know how good Broncolor's uh, or Profoto's warranties are, but, you know, even if you can get it fixed under warranty, if they have, a you know, free repairs, even if you drop it accidentally, you know, we'll still fix it for free under the warranty, which I highly doubt, but maybe, maybe that's part of the, the attraction of spending thousands of dollars on a single light. But even still, I mean, like you said earlier, you got to ship it to them, wait for them to fix it, ship it back. You can be without that light for a couple of weeks, so you've got to have other lights. And, you know, it gets kind of costly to have six or eight of these $10,000 light stand setups, you know, so that if one gets knocked over and you got to ship it off and it's gone for two weeks, well, you, you got seven other ones you could fall back on. That's just not a good use of money in my, my, my humble opinion. You know, I don't make I don't make seven figures a year like he does, but even if I did, I would not be spending 150, 200 grand just on lighting. I just yeah. I can't see it, especially when you can get fantastic performance out of less expensive options like Godox. I've got uh, as a matter of fact, when I when I was getting my uh, photography degree, the very first studio light set I bought was all photodiox. I got three photodiox, 600 watt uh, watt second uh, mono lights. And they came with, I think I got two, either two or three soft boxes of different sizes in the set. And I got the three mono lights, and, you know, and all their cables and all that good stuff. And the power supply, and it came in a big, like, carry bag, like, kind of like a duffel bag, a lighting kit bag. And I paid, like, I think at the time, like 300 bucks for that whole kit. For that whole kit. And I used that all the time I was going to school at the Art Institute. And that, well, I take that back all except for my last year, the last year of school, um, when I had gotten some money from the car accident I was in, um, in 2015, I actually went online and bought a set of three of the policy buff DigiB 800s. So I've got those as well, but I still have the photo dioxide lights and they work really well. And I I've read online, people talk about them burning out quickly and stuff like that. I've been using my photo dioxide model lights for like, almost five years now and I've never had a problem with them. Yeah, you know, I think people, they, they get too much into just brands itself. Even, like even cameras, like me, okay, I shoot with a Sony R3 and, and you know, I don't think any less of Canon, Nikon, Pentax, Olympus, or anything, or any other camera brand. And, and I think, a lot of people that's out there, they try to just justify their buy, so to say, and and they 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 get all wrapped up, and 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 if you really come down to it, it's 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 you know lighting, light is light, okay, you know some lights will perform better than others, but if your light is performing for your needs, then you know light is light, like. You could have a $300 light set and it performs to your needs, then why would you want to move to something else? The only time people need to upgrade on lighting is when it stops fulfilling their needs. And and that and that goes for you know, even even cameras, camera bodies, lenses, and, and everything else. You just when something stops fulfilling your need. Or, and you need something to fulfill that, then you should wisely move up. You know, I have a buddy who I seen yesterday, and, and you know, he, has, he owns a studio down in San Diego, and 
This guy used to have tons of lenses. The only lenses he has now is a 24-70 and a macro lens. He got rid of everything else because it did not fulfill his needs. And it's always wise to have stuff that fulfills your needs. Yeah, he sort of sounds like he was one of those folks. And it happens to a lot of photographers. He basically had gas or gear acquisition uh, syndrome. So he was out buying anything and everything. And then as he got along in his photography, he was like, uh, well, why did I buy like 15 lenses when I only primarily use like two or three? <laughs> and that happens yeah. to a lot of photographers. They just get carried away with buying so much gear. And then they're like, wait a minute, why did I buy all this gear? I'm not even using like 80% of it. And it's just that, you know, I think part of it's the marketing hype, for, you know, from the manufacturers when they're coming out with new stuff constantly. And uh, some of it's just, uh, I don't know, maybe keep it up with the Joneses syndrome or something like that. You know, they see another photographer's got all this stuff. And they're like, well, I got to have all that stuff too. And then they get it all. And they're like, wait a minute, I don't freaking use like most of this stuff. I'm using like two lenses, three lenses tops, and that's it. So I need to dump these other 12 lenses that I never use because they're just collecting dust anyways. Yeah. And just like you were saying, that's why I tell other photographers all the time, especially that are just starting out or they're doing it as a hobby or they're a photography student. I said, look, don't fall for the marketing garbage from the manufacturers. You don't need a new camera body every year just because Sony, Canon, Nikon, whoever releases a new one. You don't need it just because they released it. Unless you're a YouTuber like Jared Poland from Fronos Photo who's making fantastic money doing his content on YouTube and he can afford to have the, the newest body every year as soon as it comes out so he can do real-world reviews and stuff like that. Fantastic. But you don't need to upgrade your camera every year. Unless that camera, your old camera, is holding your work back somehow, you don't need a new camera. And I've even put the brakes on buying new cameras. I, I, was, I wasn't super bad, but when I got my settlement, I got a 1DX Mark II, and I got a 6D Mark II. I'd already had the regular 6D before the settlement money. Um, and I had a 5D SR, and that, again, was from before the settlement. So the only thing I really bought when I got my settlement was the 1DX Mark II. Because at the time, I was shooting a lot of sports just for myself, NASCAR and stuff like that. And I bought the rest of the, the only other photography gear I bought out of that settlement money besides that one body was all high quality glass. And But I didn't buy like 20 lenses. You know, I got me, I got the 100 to 400 Mark II, the 70 to 200 28 Mark II, because um, I had originally had the 70 to 200 F4. So I went to a better aperture and got the second edition because the third one hadn't dropped at that time, the Mark III of the 7200 Canon. And, um, but that's it. I mean, I bought like two or three really high quality L lenses in one body and that was it. That was it. I stopped. And that's what I tell other photographers all the time. You don't need to constantly get a new body every year just because you're, the brand you use dropped a new body. Who cares? Yeah, it's going to have some new belt. And, and, but if you look at it honestly, and again, I'm not knocking anybody because uh, I hadn't talked to you yet, but just recently I've been kicking around the idea of possibly picking up the Sony a7R IV uh, the beginning of this year. And it's not that I'm going to switch. I'll still have my Canon. And I, you also probably didn't know this unless you saw my post in the Facebook group, but I got rid of my three Canon DSLRs that I had. I kept just the EOS R mirrorless that I bought last year. And yeah. when I sold the DSLRs, I used that money to buy the Fuji 
film GFX 50R medium format mirrorless in two lenses. So I went from four bodies to only two bodies. Both are mirrorless. One's Fuji for medium format, Canon for full frame. But I am kicking around the possibility of getting a Sony full frame mirrorless this year. And it's mostly because, and, and, and I'm not picking on Canon, because like I said, I'm not planning on leaving Canon, but Sony does have such a head start on Canon and Nikon and, and full frame mirrorless. There's no hands down. They're blowing them out of the water right now. But I think Canon's are going to become a serious threat really quickly. And there's just been a lot of stuff going on lately that it looks like Canon's going to be Sony's biggest threat. And Nikon, and I hate to say this, and I'm not trying to be a, a jerk or anything, I'm afraid Nikon's going to go the way of the dinosaur. They're hemorrhaging money right now. And they just do not have the money for research and development to really give Sony any kind of run for their money in the mirrorless full frame market. The only, the only company right now that can do that is Canon, and that's because Canon has extremely deep pockets because Canon, like Sony, their personal product portfolio of things they sell is so diverse. Both companies make very, very little of their annual revenue from their interchangeable lens camera division. They make the bulk of their money in their other products, like Canon, it's medical imaging hardware, and Sony, you know, it's everything else. They got TVs, Blu-ray players, they got the game systems, they got all kinds of stuff. So with both those two companies, their interchangeable lens camera division is a very, very small portion of their annual income. They're making billions off their other products in their portfolio. Well, you got to look at Nikon. Though. Nikon's a is a kind of different animal. You know, they're professional pro photographers. You know, they don't upgrade their bodies every every couple of years they they actually keep their equipment for a lot longer uh when they when they go out and shoot they they shoot they they're not like like a lot of the other camera brands like canon sony uh pentex uh, and every everyone else their shooters they market their stuff for the pros and their pros keeps their equipment longer. They don't they don't go off and start you know switching camera systems and and, and stuff like that. I mean they they really shoot. If you you would have to like I watch most of the people who I talk to and I watch on YouTube shoot Nikon. I don't I don't really pay attention to people who shoot Sony because because Sony has a great marketing team that, that hypes up stuff. Uh, you know, and you and you got a lot people, of Sony fanboys and girls. Yeah, exactly. And and but I watch a lot of Nikon shooters. I mean, this one professional shooter I watch, he still shoots with a D four, taking wildlife pictures and, and tracking through like seven days of snow to take that picture. And so their shooters are just a little bit different. Uh, their mentality and and thought process, even like photo me Ike. I watch Photo Me Ike a lot. And I even chat with them a lot. Uh, you know, he they they just don't go out and rush to buy stuff. They they like to use the gear that they have until it, it's exhausted, until it can't function no more. Yeah. And and see what what's going to happen with Nikon is they're they're just going to cut production of their stuff because Nikon does a lot of optical stuff in other areas too. 
but they're just going to cut their cut you know cut down on on their camera bodies and, and gear it to the people that that uses their stuff and really uses it and and I think that's why their marketing isn't like like Sony's or even Canon because because just think when right before right before Black Friday look how many of these YouTubers were were advertising the EOS R I mean like like it was like going out hard like almost every single video was about you know Sony shooters using EOS R you know but if you if you look you didn't really see too many Nikon guys going over there and be like, oh yeah, I'm gonna try to use the USR and buy a new USR. No, they don't be playing that stuff. They Nikon people, they are dedicated and they love their gear. They you know, some have switched to Sony because, you know, they wanted mirrorless and, and Nikon didn't fulfill their needs, but a lot of those guys didn't. They they hey I'm happy with my DSLR. I'll keep using the DSLR. So, oh, yeah. And you have that in both camps, both Canon and Nikon, because that's one thing that Canon's talked about recently is that none of their really hardcore pro photographers have even thought about going to mirrorless. They're all still shooting with 1DX, first gen 1DX Mark II, or, you know, the previous iteration, which was actually not a full frame camera, but a 1.3X crop factor uh, 1D series. A lot of people didn't realize that only the 1DX, that's the only 1D camera series that Canon ever made that's actually full frame. Any of the yeah. previous generations of 1D cameras were all a 1.3 crop, where their their uh, consumer DSLRs are a 1.6 crop. Uh, so they were close to full frame, but they weren't quite. But the 1DXs are. And that's the big thing Canon's been seeing is they're, you know, they're guys that are out there shooting for National Geographic and, you know, that are world famous wildlife photographers and travel photographers and stuff like that, they're all sticking with their Canon DSLRs. And I think a lot of that is because these guys, you know, it's like you said, they want to use their DSLR until that thing is dead, until it's completely non-operational. Um, because it's what they're used to shooting with, especially when you get into the 1DX and you get into the, to the Nikon uh, D4, D5, D6, which will be coming out soon. Those cameras are built like, freaking tanks. I mean, they're virtually indestructible. There's a reason why they're big and heavy, because they're made to survive pretty much any environment, and they're unbelievably resilient. But what worries me, and again, I'm not saying this to pick on Nikon. I hope it doesn't happen, because Nikon, like Canon, they've both been around for over 100 years, and I would hate to see Nikon die off. But the other thing that's making a lot of people nervous about what's going to happen with Nikon, you were right. They did have a big sports optics division. They just killed that. They're no longer making any sport optics at all. No spotting scopes, no rifle scopes, no binoculars, no telescopes. They killed all of that off at the end of 2020 or 2019. They're no longer making all that stuff. They didn't just scale, scale back production. They killed it all. Totally. No more. No longer are we manufacturing these items. And I guess it's because they were losing money. So that's the big reason why I'm a little bit worried for Nikon because their their pockets aren't as deep as Canon and Sony. So they're going to have a harder time staying relevant, relevant as the technology. Because, you know, eventually those guys that are hardcore DSLR shooters, whether they're Canon shooters or Nikon shooters, sooner or later, they're going to have to go to mirrorless. 
because they're going to get to the point where their DSLRs don't function anymore. You know, we're going to get to a point in maybe one to two years where if you're 1DX, Mark II, Mark III, whatever it is, croaks, you're going to be like, okay, I got to go get me a new sports DSLR. Well, guess what? None of the manufacturers are making sports DSLRs anymore. It's all flagship mirrorless sports cameras. So then you don't have a choice. And, yeah. and I can understand from their standpoint, staying with what they've had for so long because they believe in using it until it's exhausted. Plus, a lot of those guys and gals also have ten, twenty, thirty thousand dollars $30,000 in glass, whether it's Nikon F-mount glass or Canon EF-mount glass. They're not in any hurry to just sell off their $30,000 in EF or F-mount glass and start rebuying in Z or RF glass. So they're not looking to do that. Now, oh, it, no. an interesting thing that I talked about on a recent episode of this show, and Tony Northrup talked about it recently on his show, Tony and I have both been speculating, and there's been some rumors circulating on the internet that Canon may be planning to release a hybrid camera this year. What, a single body, a thicker body, it would be thicker like a DSLR, but it would have the sensor mounted on a micro rail system, and it would have a single mount on the front that would accept both EF and RF lenses with no adapter, no physical adapter required. And people are like, oh, you're crazy, it's impossible. No, it's not, think about it. Canon went from their EF mount to their RF mount. What did they change? The flange distance, they added four extra electronic contacts. They didn't change anything else. The diameter of both lens mounts is exactly the same. The bayonet locking system is pretty much exactly the same. The only thing that changed was the flange distance and the fact that the EF lenses have eight contacts and the RF ones have 12, but the contacts are in the exact same spot on both lenses. Where Nikon went a little bit crazy they finally created a bigger diameter lens mount with their Z mount, but they changed the Z mount so radically that there's no way without an adapter you could go from F to Z. Where a Canon being everything else is the same between their two mounts, other than the flange distance and the number of contacts, I could see it being possible that Canon might pull something sneaky and come out with a hybrid DSLR slash mirrorless body. It's going to be interesting. Maybe I'm wrong. But I don't think so. I think they've got something up their sleeve. I think there's a very specific reason why Canon did not, did not radically change their mount for the EOS R. Yeah, I, they, they could. It will be interesting. The, the only problem is, because I've seen the, the video by Tony Northrop on it, uh, talking about dropping this, it's sliding out. The only problem is going to be is going to be the, the mechanical parts of it because you're going to get dirt, dust, you know, everything else in there. And if they do it properly and put proper weather sealing to prevent um, the elements from getting in there, it could be a very good possibility they come out with one. Um, I, I, I just don't see why... Why it, it would probably be a, I, I think it would probably be a lot smarter to come out with a DSLR with an uh, electronic viewfinder, <laughs> which you know, to me I think it would probably be a little bit uh, a little bit wiser option. But you know, well I don't know much so. <laughs> yep. Uh, well, like I said, I'm waiting to see what's going to happen because the minute. Canon came out with the EOS R, 
and the RF mount, I was looking at, you know, because I got the EOS R and I got the uh, 24 to 105 F4 LIS RF lens, the kit lens, L lens. Yeah. And I'm looking at that lens and comparing it to my 24 to 105 EF Mark II that I had. And I'm like, what the frick are they doing? They changed almost nothing between the two lenses other than four extra contacts and a shorter flange distance. I'm like, what in the heck was the reasoning behind logic behind that? They should have just stuck with the EF mount for their mirrorless bodies. But now that I'm starting to hear more of this stuff circulating on the internet, I think it might be possible that they're going to do a hybrid camera. Whether or not it would be successful, I don't know. I don't think it's going to be a low-end camera. I think it's going to be a DSLR mirrorless hybrid that's more of a flagship camera to maybe yeah. attract attract some of those pro National Geographic shooters and Olympic, you know, Olympic shooters that are staying with their DSL gear because of all that EF glass they got. Now you've got a new way to tempt them to put their toes in the water, you know, on the mirrorless end of the pool because they can get a body that can do both. And they don't need to fumble with any adapters or worry about losing any adapters when they're out in the field. So it's going to be interesting to see if that happens. But anyway, so we got sidetracked a lot oh, yeah, um, we sure did. away from our off-camera off flash. Idea. That's all right. I, I can stay on with you a little bit longer. If you've got the time, I've got the time. That's not a problem. Oh, I, I got time. I love the, I like these episodes to go longer anyways. Uh, a lot of the episodes that I do just by myself are anywhere from 15 to 30 minutes. So when I do the interviews, I like them to go a good hour, sometimes hour and a half. Um, and I've never had anybody complain about it. They seem to really like it. Now, getting back to talking about off-camera lighting for just yeah. a moment here, and I wanted to ask you because I honestly could not remember if it was you or somebody else I had talked to last year, but when you were first really, really dedicating your energy to mastering off-camera flash, I can't remember if it was you or someone else that told me that you actually found some sort of software that you could use on your computer where you could plug in, you know, what kind of portrait shoot or what kind of shoot it was going to be indoors, outdoors, so on and so forth. And you could tell it how many lights you had, what they were rated for, power capabilities, light capabilities, all of that. And it would help you come up with a proper lighting set, kind of like a lighting diagram software. Yes. Was it you that was it you that was telling me about that or somebody else? I could not remember for the life of me. I think I was telling you about that Elixir of SETI light. It's called what? SETI light from Elixir. Oh, okay. I'm going to have to definitely check into that because I had thought I'd read a couple of places that there was some sort of uh, uh, lighting software, uh, just, you know, that did just what I was exactly talking about a moment ago um, that would um, give you that ability. You could plug in what kind of shoot you were trying to do, what lights you had. And it would give you recommendations for the best place to position them and all of that good stuff, depending on the kind of look you were trying to get. But it's a program. Uh, and what you do is, is you could go in there and build your light setup, or build a light plan. You could fit your soft boxes, what type of light you're using. And, and you could build a, an actual light plan. And with the diagram, they have these little models in there. You can fit the models. It'll show you the highlights and and, and shadows of, of the image, and you could go in there and adjust it and everything. It's it's a really awesome program. It's probably one of the best programs you you could use for for lighting simulations. 
Yeah, because I mean, I pulled it up the website on the website, and it looks, I mean, it's really amazing. It's like you said, it, it gives you everything. It tells you where your your highlights are going to be, your shadows, everything. I mean, it's super, super detailed software. Yeah, I haven't got the version 2. They got the satellite uh, 3D version 2. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, but I'm going to probably purchase that one, too, because I really love using the program to, to, um, to determine what I'm going to do. Because even though it's based around a studio, uh, you could still kind of mimic it for outdoor use and and stuff. So I, I use the program a lot just to just to uh, give myself a rough idea how I'm going to set lighting up when I get on location. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and I thought it was you that had told me about this before. I'm definitely going to have to look at getting myself a copy. And I see, um, I mean, it's not... Super cheap software, but it's not massively expensive. I mean, you can get the Cetalite 3D version 2.0 Studio. Uh, you get the basic version, I'm sorry, full version, basic for Mac or Windows for $79. Right now it's on sale, um, down from $94. Or you can get the Studio Edition for $154, which is on sale from $229. So that's, that's not, it's not super, super expensive. Um, I know there's probably listeners out there that are going, what are you, crazy? That's a lot of money. <laughs> well, but yeah, not so if it's going to help you up your, master your off-camera flash gaze. It's yeah, definitely worth yeah. the money. Yeah, not only that, plus uh, sometimes you have to submit a light plan at a location. Exactly. And, and, and you could use that and it'll make it look a lot more professional than trying to scratch it out on paper. So, so I mean, there, there's reasons why you will want to have a program like that, especially if you have to submit a light plan to somebody and it just looks a lot more professional and they have a basis of an idea of how your lights going to set up and so it won't cause any interference with with um, where you're going to shoot at on location. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I knew I knew there was definitely more pl- more pros than cons with the software. And that was something I hadn't considered before is that... Um, you know, there are going to be, depending on the kind of photography you do, there are going to be times where you, in order to work with somebody, you may have to submit them a lighting plan ahead of time um, so they can get an idea of, you know, what you're going to be doing, what gear you're going to be bringing, how you're going to be setting it up, and how it's going to impact what they're doing. So, yeah, yeah this software would be an absolute must-have for that kind of stuff. And I will, of course, uh, I'm going to put a link to their website in the show notes for all my listeners so that you can check it out for yourself. You can download a free trial. It's more than likely good for 30 days. That's the way it is with most software. Uh, the trial copy is good for 30 days. And um, then you can go from there. But it, I mean, it from the looks of it, it does some amazing things. And John's been using it for, what have you been using it for, over a year now or so? Yeah, yeah, yeah. over a year. Um, my buddy, um, Sean, he, he told me about, about this, and I was watching them uh, putting up light, lighting diagrams up on, on in a Facebook group, mm-hmm. and I was like, "Wow, that's pretty interesting." And he told me what to use, and he goes, "This stuff is spot on. If you plug in your modifiers and, and put your mannequin in there, it'll come out exactly like how how it looks. It's it's going to be pretty much spot on." So I've been using it ever since, and. Almost every shoot I do, I usually go in there and, and we'll do a lighting plan because I like to see see what my results are going to be prior to shooting. 
Oh, absolutely. I don't blame you there. It's definitely good to have an idea uh, going into something. It's great to have an idea ahead of time what the lighting's going to look like, you know, so you don't get caught as much off guard when you get on location. It's better, yeah. better to have a more definitive idea of how the lighting's going to work before you even get to the location. Makes you better prepared and makes you look a lot more professional as well. Yeah, it, it helps out. Absolutely. Because like me, I base my lighting off the sun. I don't, you know, I don't base it off of um, anything else besides the sun. Mm -hmm. and, and how I'm going to face the models. I mean, like me, I, I'm terrible. I have the, I'll have the model look at the sun if I have to, to get the shot. So, <laughs> you know, not, 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 the, not the best thing to do, but, but hey, if I, if, if I want to get the shot, you know, there's going to be some things that, that I do, but but I'll use the lighting diagram and, and set it up, and I even I'll even pick where the sun is going to be if I know where the sun's going to be, because every location is different and the sun always moves. So mm -hmm. yeah, absolutely. Now go. I'm going back again, and I'm looking at your modeling section of your website, and I got another one I want you to talk about. Um, so let's see. This one is this is an image that's straight down from the last one we were talking about. It's not the next one with the red dress or the blonde hair, blonde haired model with the blue dress at the ocean, but the one right after that. This is a lady that's wearing an orange dress. She's got quite she's got quite a few tattoos, and she's sitting on what looks like a either a wooden bridge or a wooden pier of some kind, and she's kind of like got the woods behind her. Oh, okay, yeah, I see it. Yeah, that's a fantastic shot, and now. Just out of curiosity, did you shoot this at dusk or twilight, or did you just create that look with your lighting? Uh, no, I shot it around um, dusk time. Was, oh, okay. Because I was going to say, man, if you pull that off with your lighting, that's seriously amazing. <laughs> if you've gotten that good, that's crazy. Um, I could have I done it in post if I wanted to, but I did it. Yeah. Now, uh, this again was a two-light setup or a one-light and reflector? Uh Two light setup. Okay, so go ahead and go ahead and talk us through how you did the lighting setup for this one, if you don't mind. Okay, yeah, I took a this this one was with a, a thirty four inch softbox. No, twenty twenty six inch softbox. Uh, it was the light was boomed over my head, and then I put the strip box. It, it was a bridge, and underneath the bridge, there's kind of like a creek or something. So I had to use a I had to use like a ten foot light stand to to get the light up high the strip box up high and so I used the strip box uh, right where you see the highlight on your hair is and that's where the strip box was but it was down below the bridge so I had to boom it up oh okay and then of course I I lowered the light down and I I got some spillage of light where where she were around her. And which I, di I didn't want to remove. I could have removed it in post, but I didn't. Mm -hmm. and, and I just, I kept that light just like that. And the light was camera right about four feet away or five feet away. Wow. That's great. And you created a, I mean, it gave it a great lighting effect. I mean, she is just lit perfectly. And you've got the good separation, which you always seem to be really good at getting. 
great separation right. between her and, and the bridge that she's on, as well as her in the background. So yeah, you've definitely got, you've gotten some mad skills with your lighting, my friend. <laughs> oh, thank you. Absolutely. Uh, you, you know, my, I, I properly exposed the image. That I think that's the key because a lot of people, I think a lot of people are struggling with lighting. They're either going to try to kill the ambient and, and add flash or, or they try to properly expose and then they fumble around with the lighting. And, you, you know, you, you have to, you don't kill the ambient because you could do the, Killing the ambient, you could do all of that in post. What you want to do is properly expose the image. Uh, like me, I use I I use the um, the the um, for metering. I use where you can expose. It gives it exposes the entire scene. And I forgot where it is, but it's not spot because but it exposes the entire scene. So my first thing I do is I look at what I want my background to look like. And I want to properly expose the background. Oh, you mean you're, put, you're talking about using evaluative metering versus spot metering? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yep. And, and what I do is I I give my background where I want it. If I want it to, you know, I, me, I'm normally uh, half a stop under um on a, a metering and then I add light and, and then I start from usually I start from I'm pretty good at judging where I want my light power to be and then I just I just turn up the light until I have light on her uh, for my main light and then what then I add my secondary light to to uh, and feather the secondary light unless I'm gonna rim her out but then I have my secondary light, and I usually have my secondary light. Usually I try to keep it one stop under what my main light is going to be, so I could just add that nice subtleness to it. And I try to, my overall goal is, is kind of have like a, almost like a 360 of lighting. So sometimes if I add one light, I add another light, those lights are going to be split across each other, so I could I can have I can have all the lighting wrap around her at one time, and then um, which is going to cause the image to be somewhat flat. And and then what I do is I use dodge and burn to bring her out, and, and a lot of, a lot of the stuff that you see which really brings the person out in my images is all because of dodge and burn. Yeah, and and that's something that's been used in photography for decades. <laughs> even yeah. even in the plate film days, dodge and burn was used. Yeah, yep. and and I think you know, to me personally, I think shooting natural light is harder than actually shooting with adding light, because you know, when when you add light, you got to add light to your your vision. What are you trying to create? You know, and then, you know, people are getting confused. Oh, I try to add light. I try to do this. It just doesn't seem to work out. You know, you know, you got to, you got to think first about your background. It's always going to be about your background first. And then you put your subject there and then you light your subject 
you know, you can light it with one light, two lights. I mean, a lot of times I can, you know, I can light stuff with one light. I just prefer two lights on how I shoot because it's just the way I shoot. I just prefer two lights. And normally I shoot, I don't really, since I don't shoot with with um, lighting that's diffused, I, I normally shoot with undiffused lighting. It, it makes it even harder. And so, but I try to really want to bring out the person themselves. And that's the main reason why I shoot with undiffused lighting. You know, a lot of people hate it. I, I get cussed out by a lot of people for using undiffused lighting. But I think in order to bring out a subject, to bring out a person, I think undiffused lighting does does the best job of it, and that's why I use undiffused lighting. Now my rim light or, or my secondary light is usually diffused because I don't I don't need that light to really bring the person out in front of the camera. I just need that light to to send light out just to add that add that um behind the pop to to really separate them from from the backdrop from the background yeah absolutely and uh, like i said earlier it's whatever light you like best and you think gives you the best images so those people that give you grief about the type of lighting you use they need to just take a chill pill and worry about their own stuff <laughs> they don't need to worry about how you're doing your lighting they can worry about how they're doing their own lighting they can leave you alone because you, yeah. you've definitely mastered your lighting. You've got fantastic lighting technique. These images are really, really, really high quality. The lighting is really good. Um, the next one I wanted to ask you about, because this one looks like it's more of a combination of your lights and natural daylight. And that's the next image down from the one you were just talking about, which is the, the girl. Um, and she's standing in front of an old red pickup or a red truck. And there's part of a Coca-Cola sign up above her. Now, this one looks like this was more of you happen to work with one or possibly two lights like you like to do, but you also had to work with the natural sunlight in this scene. I'm guessing because it looks like it was the sun was pretty bright out at that time. Yeah, this was shot in midday. Uh, it's a two light setup. Uh, Cheetah Sand RV90 with chopstick and, and a high output reflector. Oh no no! This was I did it with a Cheetah Stand Co. Forty Five, and a which is a high high output reflector, and a Cheetah Stand Snub Thirty Eight, which is a high output reflector, and and both of the interiors were silver, and that's what I use. I use two high output reflectors on this at four hundred watts a piece. Both of them were at four hundred watts, one one, and. You can see in the, the catch light in her eyes, it's kind of like a V. Or that's how my light was set up. It was set up sort of like a V. Yeah, and I mean this that image again, really, really strong image. Great mastery of the light there. And it, you know, it's obvious that you shot this in very bright direct sunlight. Middays. I mean, a lot of people try to avoid midday light because they say it's the worst light to work with, but you did a great job of taming midday light with your your two adding your two lighting sources to this scene. I mean, you've got perfect. There are no harsh shadows from the midday sun in this shot at all. I mean, you've got it. You've got everything evened out beautifully as far as the lighting goes. Yeah, and see, this is the reason. 
like me, I prefer midday because, I mean, on on here I probably have what, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. I got eight. I got eight images on my on the website that was all shot in midday, and I prefer midday. What I do with lighting is because you know it's all about highlights and shadows. I take. And this is why I use two lights whenever I shoot now, or I've been using two lights for a while. It's because I use one light for main and one light to actually cut the shadows down. Yeah, even exactly. When I, Which makes even, total sense. Even when I, I, the one that was shot on the bridge, because I use, I use a lot of hard light, that rim light or my separation light, what I call it, and and it's diffused. I actually use that to help take out some of the hard shadows that's going to come in. Because, you know, you can look at the image and you could be like, yeah, it's shot with hard light, but still it's so soft. How, how is that? <laughs> and I get asked a lot on that. Oh, I can imagine, yeah. How, how, how did you shoot in hard light and, and still have soft shadows? It's because... I used another light to help cut that sharp shadow down so it looks like it's being used with soft light, yep. even though it's hard. So it yeah, it, it it's kind of tricky to do and but that that's one thing. You know, I do like hard shadows sometimes. I mean and when when the shadows are really sharp and abrupt. I do like it, but sometimes, you know, you, you want to go ahead and, and you want to soften those shadows up, especially in midday when you're shooting because you got nothing but hard shadows, mm -hmm. really, really strong shadows coming. They're very sharp. And you want, you want to use another light to help um, fill in, fill light those shadows. Yeah, exactly, because in midday, that's all you're going to get is harsh shadows. <laughs> yeah, that's why. I, I, that's why a lot of photographers try to avoid it like the plague. If they, if they have to day. shoot outdoor, they hate midday. They want you know they want earlier in the day or later in the day when the when the sunlight's not at its strongest and it's not straight up in the air. But yeah. it's really yeah. fantastic, and it's so funny because you you talk about this like so many other photographers who have really mastered lighting, whether it's David Hobby or Zach Arias, who's based out of here in Atlanta, you're like, you're just like them. I don't have a problem shooting midday. I like shooting midday because I know how to bend the sunlight to my will, <laughs> so to speak. <laughs> it, it, it's because, you know, yeah, golden hour is fine and, and stuff and, you know, the sun setting is fine but but in reality you know some of the best skies you're going to get is during midday i mean with her in the truck you got that beautiful blue sky the the rustic of the truck and stuff i mean i, I would have been able to get that without shooting in midday and like me i i believe the background and is just as important as the subject when you're to when you bring them together Mm -hmm. You know, it they they all everything has to coincide and mesh well. Everything has to be in harmony well with each other. And shooting in midday, it gives 
you know, most people who shoots in the midday, they're going to blow out the sky and it's going, the sky's going to look white. And that's why they, you know, that's one of the reasons why they don't want to shoot in the midday because they're going to have ugly skies. And then, and then of course the hard shadows, you know, as long as the person doesn't have hard shadows, you know, your ground can have hard shadows. I mean, it's midday. Mm-hmm. Unless you're going to go in there and, and eliminate that. But, but you know, when you set up your lighting and you have your subject out there, look at the, look at the ground. Where does the shadows fall? You know, and that's the, one of the most important things when setting up lighting, especially on locational lighting. You, you need to know where your shadows is going to be. You have to look for the shadows. And what I do is, you know, I, I train my eyes, especially, you know, looking for shadows throughout the day. You know, and it's simple. Like when you're driving in your vehicle, see where that, how the car, where the shadow is coming off the car and, and just start learning how, how shadows work, how the sun rotates and how those shadows move around. And, and then you're, and then that's how you start learning how to place lighting, placing your strobe and stuff. Cause, cause then you could, you could know how to master the light once you know how shadows go. And, and it makes it so much easier. And, and you know, like me, I try to get the images as flat as possible with, with shadows and highlights. Well, not really with highlights. I just try to get it as flat as possible because what I'm going to do in post is I'm going to add where where the shadows needs to be darker at with dodge and burn or, you know, with burn. And, and I'm going to start carving out. I'm going to start carving out um, my shadows and I'm going to start adding highlights to, to make the images really come out. And... And yeah, you know, you know, it's just just understanding and learning how light, especially for locational photographers. I, I mean, a lot of locational photographers they 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 have problems with setting up lighting because they watch too much YouTube videos. You know, if you watch YouTube videos, they're only going to be setting up a light at a 45 degree angle in the most desirable time of day to shoot. You, you know, they're they're not shooting. In, in real world situations, they're shooting when it's going to be convenient, and and they're going to be using the the biggest softbox as they can at, at an angle that's going to be the most flattering for them for for the person. But in real world, you don't have that. You know, you have a client coming up to you, and they're going to be like, "Hey, I want to shoot. This is my time frame," and and you're going you're going to have to go out there and, and make it happen. And it, it could be midday, it could be at night, it could be at sunset, you know, you, you just don't know when it's going to happen, but, but you got to go out there and just start learning and understanding lighting and, and start working on, on light placement. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, understanding the ratio of the sun, because you're not going to overpower the sun, you know, it's just not going to happen. You know, you could attempt to, you could, you could try to kill your ambient and then add lighting. But, you know, at the end of the day, you, you know, you're going to look at your image and, and you're going to have to like, hey, you know what? Uh, this is meh. Now, maybe I, I could 
I could kill ambient in post if I wanted to, which you can. It's, it's easier, you, you know, you'll, you'll run into less problems if you properly expose and then expose lighting than it is if you you shoot at one eight thousandths and, and f4 and then add lighting. I don't know if you understand what I mean, but yeah, yep. But it's it's easier to properly expose everything and then then take out what you want to take out. Exactly. Place. You know, natural light shooters they they will find like open shade and and stuff like that, and then you know and then they'll do a lot of stuff in post to get their their stuff. Well, you know, when you start adding light and and everything, then you don't have to do so much in post to get the image to look what you want, because you can already envision what your image will look like, and then you just have to add lighting to it, and then you just take it into post production and do your do your stuff what you normally do. But you know you don't have to really go in there and start start testing out the dynamic range of your camera. Yeah, exactly. And it was it was funny because uh, on one of the other podcasts that I listened to recently, they had an episode that was about um, uh, portrait lighting using off camera flash in the portrait studio. And this this person that was the the guest on that episode of that show, um, who's like you, really really good at mastering their off-camera lighting and, and using it to control the midday sun and stuff like that. This other person likes to do outdoor portrait shoots. And just like you, she prefers to shoot in midday. And then bend and basically bend the sunlight to her will using her lights in addition to the natural light. And it was I, the thing I thought was comical is she was saying, yeah, anytime I hear a photographer say, oh, I'm a, I'm a natural light photographer. That basically just means they never learned how to use flash. <laughs> They've never bothered to learn how to use a flash. Uh, no, I know, I know a couple guys. They prefer natural light, and they know how to use flash. They just prefer natural light because you know when you start using scopes, you know you're 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 turning you're turning it into a different scene where it is. Um, as a photographer, as photography wise, yeah, I would, I would say, but a lot of natural light shooters, you know, you know, a lot of them will claim they shoot natural light, and and they they probably could out shoot you with strobes. I mean, I mean, some people have the preference, you know, like like um, Irene Ruddick, she just used flash for her Christmas shoe or something. And she's an all-natural light shooter, and she went out there and used flash, but she understood lighting, and which which is um, you know, uh, uh, anything you do, understanding how light is, that's that's the most important. Either if you're a natural light shooter or you shoot with strobes, you know, you know, because we all started off shooting natural light. Yeah. You know, every every single photographer that's out there started shooting natural light first. It just so happens that that us who likes to use strobes, we we like to use available tools that that we have and and we acquire because everything in, in photography should be a tool 
to advance your photography to another level or, or creating images that you visualize in your mind. It, everything is just a tool. Uh, now, people, there's people that doesn't want to flash and strobes and, and you know, there, there's people out here, like we're in my area, they advertise that they're a natural light shooter and, and, and stuff. And, you know, you know, hey, if it works for you, it works for you. It doesn't work for me. I, yeah. mean, I, I like to control everything. I do, and, and that's I, I don't need the sun to control and dictate what I'm going to do, <laughs> you know. And that's what it is, you know. You know, if you learn lighting and and you learn uh, off camera flash, you're basically able to say that you know how to control your entire session on on exposure wise. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and and you know me, I I can I wouldn't be able to take a lot of the images I took in natural light. There there would be no way possible because I wouldn't be able to control the lighting, and and I would have to be so dependent on the sun, or open shade, or or adding uh, more more you know screens and and adding adding more stuff than what it, what it would be worth. You know, I set up two light stands, and and I don't and I don't diffuse anything. I just shoot, and I can control it. I can control everything with my aperture and shutter, and and you know it, it just makes it easier for me to do instead of trying to get a a twelve foot um, scrim out there to try to translucent the light. <laughs> you know. You know? Or try to find open shade. I mean, I live in a desert. Yeah. No open shade. Joshua tree. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh man, but yeah, you've got definitely got some fantastic work here, and uh, you've definitely got the lighting mastered. That's for sure. I mean, just the way that you can, like, like I said in that shot with the girl in the truck and the Coca Cola sign, you know. To get basically, you 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 did a beautiful job of basically bending the midday sun to your will, to how you wanted it to be used in your scene, in addition to your two light setup. And you got fantastic results. There's no super harsh shadows at all on that shot. You got just the right amount of fill lighting on the girl and everything. I mean, it, it just came out perfect. Yeah, you notice I didn't, I didn't leave that hot spot on, on a cleavage like most people do. Because mm -hmm. <laughs> you got to feather your light. Yeah, yep. Well, a lot of people don't do it. You know, the biggest thing to learn is feathering your light. See, like me, I like uh, a hard highlight on my image. And so so I try to find a hard highlight. Either it's going to be on the cheek or it's going to be on the face somewhere. You know, I look for that either on the hair, on the hands, uh, on the body somewhere. I, I like having a a strong highlight on my images. You know, not a lot of people prefer a strong highlight. It's just me, and, and that's what I like to do. Um, but, you know, you you have to sometimes, sometimes, you know, especially when they're wearing something like that, I, 
I have a hard highlight on the clothing, but a lot of people will get like that hard highlight uh, on her cleavage area and it will draw you in right there. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes it's flattering. Sometimes it's not so flattering. Yeah. So, yep. I understand it, what you're talking about. You, you know, it, and you know, sometimes you got, sometimes you might want to dodge that out or burn it out. And sometimes you don't, you know, it, it, everything is all subjective and, and up to, to you and, and your viewers. But don't, but you know, there's, there's a lot of criticism out there with people. people for some reason, people just like to criticize people. Yeah. You know, especially the people that don't post. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, you, know, you know, yeah, they know how to run their mouth, but they don't know how to put up anything of their own. Hey, these keyboard combat warriors. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> keyboard warriors, exactly. But you know, the but the only the only thing that really matters is as long as you and the model or your subject is happy, and you know, you know, eventually. That's what it all comes down to: is you and the and, and the model and the subject is happy. And you know, to go out there with lighting, it, it takes a lot of practice. And, and if you're, especially if, if you're new to lighting, you have to go out there and and start using it. And exactly, and it, it it might be a pain to set up. I mean. I mean, I have climbed up on cliffs with lighting, so so I, I know all about the pain and struggles. I, I I I've been inside the ocean with my lights, almost lost all my gear in, in the ocean. <laughs> yeah, but, that would not be fun. No, it wasn't. I got scared, but you gotta go out there and you gotta you gotta you know go out there and practice. You know, you know, a lot of my practicing actually came from models, <laughs> but you know, I, I was just fortunate enough that that I caught on quick to under to figure out what I like to do and and figure out how I like to use my lighting. But the but the best way to do it is just go out there and start practicing. Um, you got you know, adding light isn't hard it's not really hard to do you just have to have a you you have to understand what do you want your background to look like and and then add lighting if you know i shoot with 600 watts 400 watts um if your scopes or even a speed light if you're using a speed light you know you're gonna have to understand the distance of lighting to your subject and and how that's going to react, you know, smaller light source further away is going to be is is going to cause hard light, and and you're just going to have to you know play with with your lighting, even if you just have speed lights. I mean, you know, I shot people outdoors and now now in the midday, but when the sun was down a little bit with speed lights and, and you just have to learn how to to use modifiers and learn how to um, learn how, how distance light. You know, me I, I try to I like since I like using hard light, I try to take my my light source and I try to put it as far 
back as I can from my subject and, and still try to achieve what I got to do. Sometimes I got to bring it up closer. Sometimes I got to bring it further. And, and you just got to understand how, how the relationship, the light and light fall off. And, you know, I'm not going to go into inverse square law and all that other stuff. But, you know, if you take the scientific approach out of it and just start and just start running your likes and setting them up, uh, you know, people will say, oh, start with one light, then work yourself up to two lights, and maybe you could use three or four. You know, you could do that, or you could just go out there and and put one light stand up and see how you like it. And, and then if you're like, oh, I don't like how that shadow is, and then put another light and use split lighting and then try that out. You know, you know, there's tons of information on on different light setups out there, but you know, if you're shooting on locational, you know, think of where the sun position is first. Think of where your subject is standing or sitting or or where she's gonna be at. And then look at that then look at the how the shadow is falling. Because you don't want her standing direct sunlight burning out her eyes and squinching. So you're gonna probably have to rotate a little bit and you know, even though you see, oh wow, that's a beautiful scene right there, you know, wait till the sun moves or or position your subject where where the light the sun is in her eyes and see where the shadow is and then take lighting and and fill in the, those shadows with light. And then you can take another, you know, like me, I like to use two lights. And I use that two light, like I said, just to add separation. And you can add a, add a light for separation. It, it doesn't even have to fall on, on the subject, that light. It's just to add it. When you add a secondary light behind your subject, it, it adds, uh, so I guess it adds highlights to to bring her out more. You know, if you're using if you're using just one light, uh, and you're you're going to shoot in midday or well, you can shoot in midday or any time of day. Just you know, most important thing is pay attention where the sun is going to be and where the shadows is going to be, and then just just add light that way it, it makes it a lot easier and it keeps it really simple yeah you know? exactly and, and a lot of people you know they get frustrated because they're they're not understanding lighting you know the you're not they're not understanding the fundamentals of light the most important thing in photography is light i mean you basically break it down you know it's drawing of light so exactly so, you know, with the sun out there, look how the shadows is going to fall and then add light. Yeah. You know, if, if you if you want to soften the shadows up, then add light and soften them up. Uh, if, if you want to change the whole dynamics of the situation, you know, then you can go and use MD filters or high-speed sync and, and, and eliminate the the highlights coming from the sun and then add light and add another light to create your own direction of light. <laughs> exactly. 
So, and it, I mean, and honestly, I think your, your approach to doing this is probably, would probably be one of the best ways for somebody that really wants to learn off camera lighting to use the same, basically the same approach you did. I mean, to me, it seems like it would be a great setup to use the set of light software to plan out your lighting ahead of time and see where everything's going to fall and how things are going to look in the software. And then, like you said, you take that lighting plan that you worked up in the software and then just go out and practice it. Yeah, just go out and practice. You know, it, it's a lot easier to just go out and practice, especially when you have software like that, because you can't always have a model with you. Exactly. That, that's why I that's why I would highly recommend that anybody that wants to get really good at off camera lighting get the software because you you're not going to always have a model handy. Yeah, yeah, which you can do practice setups in the software. I'm assuming as well. Yeah, it can teach you how light falls off with different types types of modifiers. You know, and that's what's the real benefit of of that software. Because you could run a 26-inch softbox with it, and you can see how where the light's going to spill at and where it's going to go. And then you can use a 36-inch, and you could go all the way up to, oh, I forgot what the largest one is, like five feet or something. And you can see how that light's going to um, fall off and everything. So, I mean, I mean, you could start going in there and playing around and looking at, you know, setting the distance. Okay, so this is how this fall off is with this modifier and stuff. And it, it can make you so proficient on how modifiers interact with your subject. Even if you set it up in just that little studio, you, you could put a, a chair right there. Say like you, you're going to do a, a, low, a high key shot in a studio. You know, you're going to run out of studio and you're going and they're going to charge you $70 an hour to rent that studio and and you want to set up a high key shot so so you know instead of wasting a whole bunch of time trying to go in there okay I'm going to put I'm going to put two lights shooting at the background to make that background white and then I got to light the subject you could use set a light you know and go in there build your light plan you're going to build a high key shot light um set up so you're going to use this modifier you're going to use this and now you're going to light your subject and you can already have it almost to perfection right then and there and and then print it out or or save it to your phone and when you get there you, you already know okay i need to put this light here this light stand here i want to have my my main light here and then have your subject do a test shot you know, dial in your power settings, and, and then that's it. You know, same thing like using a using a um, using a light meter and adjusting each light off the light meter, and and then you know everything can flow. And now you know, it's, instead of um, just you know wasting 15, 20 minutes of of your rented studio space that you just had. You, you could just, you could be using that to actually shoot. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Yeah. That way you're not, like you said, you're not wasting 15, 20 minutes getting your lighting figured out in that rented studio space. And then, 
Uh, now you don't have enough time for the session, so you got to buy a second hour of studio time. Yeah, exactly. You know, you know, you know. It's always best to utilize the tools that you have available, or you know, save up to get your tools that's available. I mean, you know, like everything else, like the camera, the lens, lighting, and and all the other tools that we have to create our art that, you know, you might as well use it, you know, and, and it could be the tool that could, could put you at another level of, or in a better position. You, you could, you, you never know, you know, someone might, you know, see you, your, your thinking and like, wow, this guy's on par. He, he's smart. He's knowledgeable. He already has his stuff done and it can land you a job, you, you know, and, and that's what, you know, what you want because, because even though we're artists, our number one mind frame is should be making money. Exactly. Yep. <laughs> so we can, we can always acquire more stuff. I, I mean, you know, it's not like, it's not like Da Vinci, you know, he created something and, and he gave it away. We're, we're, we're in the money making business and, and whatever tools that we can use to make us more proficient at making money is all worth it. You know? Absolutely. It's the only way you're going to make it as a photographer for a living. <laughs> you got to, yeah. you got to use your time and tools wisely. You, you know, in a lot of commercials stuff, you know, I was, I've been reading up because like me, I want to go into more of a commercial photography. That's why I, set my lights up and, and do a lot of stuff that I do is, it, you know, a lot of times they want you to submit, you know, like if you're doing an editorial, they want you to submit your lighting diagram to them prior to submitting to, uh, for approval for, for a magazine or, and stuff like that. They actually want you to have your light plan. So, the um, creative director or can see uh, what you're going to do. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, so it makes sense. And that's how you're going to, that's how you're going to get the, the commercial work is being able to show that you can do this, that you can create the light plans when they ask for them. And you've got the body of work, you know, in your portfolio that like you have, I mean, you've definitely got shots here that could easily be in magazines easily. Or on billboards. Yeah. yeah. You know, I try. <laughs> try really hard. Yeah, and you're yeah. doing a fantastic job. Well, I'm doing okay. I mean, I've only been doing photography for two years. So. I know, and you're this good at lighting already. In two <laughs> years, that's impressive. But you put your mind to it that you were going to learn your lighting, you were going to master your lighting, and look at it. You have. Oh, yeah. Yeah, especially... And uh, when we when we go into the art institute, I mean, I probably I probably was doing stuff that was that was probably I shouldn't have been doing, like especially with off camera flash and stuff like that. But but you know, I I already knew what I wanted to create visually, and and and, and that's the thing you you know always have your vision set. You know, even when I go to Places I never shoot because a lot of times I shoot in places I never been to, and I I land on ground and I get there, and the first thing I do is I look around, 
And I look around to see where the sun is. I look around to see where the shadows is. And I just, you know, I, I take in the environment. And then, and then I, and, you know, the first minute or two, I don't even think about the model. I think about the area and, and see how it absorbs the area. And then, then I, I determine, okay, this is where I want the model to stand at, and this is where I want the model to be. And, and then, you know, my my focus and attention is always going to be on the background. Because once I get the model lit, and then, you know, you know, our job to make the model look as beautiful as possible, and, and I want, I don't want the, you know, I, I want to I want tie in the beauty of, of the background along with the model and you know because it, it doesn't make sense you have a beautiful model and and you know and you just screwed up the whole background you know sometimes i will i will you know blur out the image you know go ahead and bouquet the background but sometimes i don't sometimes you know i i still want the background to be noticeable i just don't want it to be a strong presence and you know, so sometimes I'll shoot at f1.4, f1.8. I normally shoot all the way up to f3.2 because, you know, I, I still want that background to be noticeable, but I don't want it to be such a strong, strong presence, you know, because the model will need to be the strong presence, but you don't, you don't want the... So you don't want to really, you don't want to get rid of the entire background because that that would be senseless. You might as well shoot it in a studio then. Exactly. Yep. You got to be able to use the background that you've got and mix that with the lighting. And like I said, you you've definitely got that down cold, my friend. Yeah, and people are shocked that I shoot like like I I. I posted an image in one group and I shot at f1.4 and and I still I still kept the background in, intact at f1.4 and you know you know I can shoot at f1.4 and and still keep the background intact or even with the 135 at f1.8 because you gotta understand the, the depth of field, you know, everything still, everything has has a, a coincided with each other. You, you can shoot wide open and still keep stuff tack sharp and and still not bouquet the background out. You know, you just have to understand your your tools, your equipment that you have, and and you should be using your aperture and your and your shutter for your creative edge, not as a as a, a way to, well, I'm just going to want to locate the entire background and have nothing there. Because if you take a client and she wants you to shoot someplace, you know, she wants the, she wants that that place. I, and I don't mean she all the time because, but you know, 90% of the people I shoot are females, or well, 98%. <laughs> But so that's why, but um, but she still wants to see the environment. I mean, that's the whole reason that she wanted to shoot there. 
because she wants that environment. Yeah, that's the whole reason why she wants that particular location. Yeah, and I mean, I see it time and time again. People are, you know, they'll, they'll go to a, a beautiful location. You know, you can see the location is beautiful because they'll take a behind-the-scenes picture. And then after that, you look at the image and you're just like, it's like, where did it go? Why? Why did you do that? I mean, it, it makes no sense. Yeah. You know, so, I mean, I shoot wide open, but... But, you know, I also take in consideration that, hey, you know what? I'm here in this location. I don't want the location to be overpowering. So, so yes, I will, I will go ahead and, and, and have that, the background um, be focused enough so it's not distracting, but still enough you know what it is. Exactly. Well, I think we might need to wrap it up there because we're almost at the two-hour mark. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, but that, no, that's fine. Well, like I said, I got us off on a little bit of a tangent with uh, cameras and stuff, but uh, but uh, I always like these episodes to be longer format anyways. And, I, you know, there was three or four different shots you had on your modeling section that I wanted to go over just because I figured it would give, our, give the listeners more you know, more of exposure as far as what you can do when you learn how to properly use your lighting and how to master your lighting, both your artificial light and your natural light. So, oh, yeah. well, this is definitely not a subject you can cover in one hour. Well, well, <laughs> not easily. Well, <laughs> yeah, I, I do shoot, well, if they ever come to my, my webpage, you'll see what I shoot. I shoot tattoo models fitness people, bikini stuff, it, fashion stuff. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> shoot all kinds of different stuff. I just have, uh, I I shoot a lot of hard light. I love hard light. Um, middays. And just, just how it is. And you're getting fantastic results, so you're definitely doing everything right, apparently. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I'm hoping um, I have a a museum. I, I just submitted my entrance paper and, and an application. Hopefully they'll let me do a modern day pinup style shoot there. Oh, that would be yeah. awesome. So I'm waiting for that. Um, next week, I got three shoots. Uh, the 17th, or the 16th, the 17th, and the 18th. Uh, one of them is a professional um, bodybuilder, female. And then I got, I got, I got a couple of things in the plans, and and I should be creating some a lot of new content to put on the web page. That's great, and you've you've expanded the content a lot since we you and I talked last year when you were on the show. You, yeah, you've yeah, got I, tons more content on there now. Yeah, this this all, I, I since this is my web page, I go. I, I haven't added anything onto my, my actual portfolio page. I'm, I'll probably have to start doing that. Uh, I'm going to, I, I got to get better at blogging. I'm going to start blogging more. And I'm going to try to get some um, um, behind the scene videos. And I'm going to start posting them in my blog. Yeah, there you and, go. And, the, and, the big the big bugger with the blog is you got to consistently post. So if it's going to be a weekly blog, you got to make sure you do it every week. 
or if you're going to do it every two weeks or once a month, you just, you got to make sure you stick to it. I, yeah. hear, I hear that from a lot of people like, yeah, don't have a blog on your site unless you're going to update it on a regular basis because the worst thing is to go to a photographer's site and they got a blog link and you click on it and they haven't posted a blog in two years. But they still yeah, my, they still had the blog section of their site there. Yeah, my last one was December 15th. So you know, November 10th, November 8th, November 6th. I started my, my page October 31st. So my webpage went live October 31st, 2019. So, so I just haven't done one for, for January, but you know, I want to, I'm going to start, I'll pick January. I'll do probably a couple in January. And then, and then as I start getting all these shoots caught up, I'll, I'm going to start actually putting them in once a week or once every two weeks. There you and go. And you know, and you have to write at least a thousand words. Yeah. Yep. So, so and I, yeah. I got kind of burned out doing a blog on my web photography website all the time. So I was like, you know what? Let's just turn it into a podcast. <laughs> that way I don't yeah. have that way I don't have to worry about typing a thousand at least a thousand words every week. I can just record audio. Yeah. So that's it, what I do now. My my blog became a weekly podcast show. <laughs> yeah. There's there's only certain people I allow to photograph and actually talk and be recorded. So yep. <laughs> you're one of them. So <laughs> but what I'm gonna do is I'll, I'll probably start doing some behind the scenes, showing my light setups, maybe some of the models interviews. Yeah, that would be awesome. Because uh, I get really great models uh, who are really terrific people, and 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 I really love shooting them. And so I'm gonna start probably doing some interview stuff and. Uh, there, um, some of the tattoo models um, who I will all be shooting in the future, and and then just and as I go along, there's a couple of fitness people that um, that I'm shooting, so I'm gonna start maybe doing sort of like an interview type thing and stuff like that. Yeah. Yep. Exactly. Now, are you? I, I can't remember if I asked you this before or not when you were on the show last time. Are you friends with uh, Ellie Cat on Facebook or Instagram? Yes, I think so. I think she, um, I think she friended me. Oh, okay. Uh, I was gonna say you Facebook. might you might want to circle up with her because she started doing a little more traveling and she's been doing quite a few trips out to California for shoots and stuff. And maybe you guys can work out a an opportunity where you guys could shoot together. Yeah, that, that would definitely yeah. be cool. Yeah, there's a um, you'll pro you'll probably get to shoot with her before I will because I'm in Atlanta and God only knows when she'll ever come this way. <laughs> yeah, th there's a few people that I might well my one of my biggest goals this year is to go to New York. I want there's a few people I want to shoot there. Um, but yeah, if she comes out here, I'll I'll try to link up and see if I can shoot her. It you know. Uh, I'm down to shoot anybody, um, as long as it's not Duar, implied nude or nude and stuff. Um, I, I I shoot more, you know. I I shoot glamour, but but it, it, I don't. I'm not into like sexualized glamour. Yeah. Yep. So, you know, I, I'm more I'm more into fashion style and, and stuff but I'm basically I'm more into I, I'm not, 
I'd rather have the female more intriguing than than having the female already showing everything. Yeah, exactly. You know, it's just how I am. And the stuff you're doing, the stuff you got now on your website is extremely tasteful work. Good, great work. Yeah, it, it, it highlights them and, 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 you know, they're really beautiful people. So, exactly. So, it, it really, it really shows them. And, and you know, it, it's nothing that, that would people take offense to, except maybe the very last picture down on the bottom to the, to the left. But, you know, it, it, things happen. But still, you know, it, it's not it's not a distraction where exactly. you just focus on that and and that's one thing I, I I'm not really into I'm not really into just focusing on someone's assets I rather focus the whole attention to their entire self yeah exactly exactly and you do a great job of that fantastic job thank you I appreciate it absolutely all right. Well, let's go ahead and uh, we'll wrap up this episode. I want to thank John again for joining me uh, for this episode of the podcast where we talked about off-camera flash. And John, if you want to go ahead and share with my listeners where else they can find your work. Uh, you can find it on, on Instagram at john.harbell. And I'm on gayflash at john.harbell. And you can also friend me on Facebook at john.harbell and, and if you ever have any questions or anything just just hit me up and i'll try to answer them to the best of my abilities or i can direct you to someone who i think could provide you the answer because i know uh, quite a few people that's into photography and they're really great people um i'm also i i got rid of almost all my off-camera flash groups that we're in because I didn't see the point of being in them. And so now I'm pretty much on this group called Photo Talk. That's by Josh Mills. And Master of Light uh, Community. That's by Geek Fan. Cool. Uh, really great groups. Awesome. And, of course, I will also have the link to John's website in the show notes for this episode. So you can check out all the amazing images he has there. And especially... You can look at the ones that we discussed in this episode. All right. I'm going to go ahead and wrap this up, John. I want to thank you again for being kind enough to come on the show, your second visit to the show. And it was an extremely informative one. And one that we've, like I said, we'd had a member of the Facebook group that asked if we could cover, uh, do an episode on off-camera flash. And I knew John would be the person to have on the show for that because he has done a fantastic job of mastering his off-camera flash in the, in the last couple of years that he's been doing photography. Just phenomenal work, John. Well, thank you. I really appreciate it. I'm happy to be on. And hopefully we'll have you on again down the road. I can see that. You definitely, your episodes are popular. <laughs> well, thank you. I'm, I'm shocked. <laughs> <laughs> thank you again for your time, John. You have a great evening. You too. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye. There you go, folks, and that is a wrap on episode 53 of the Liam Photography Podcast. 
I want to thank all of my listeners again for subscribing, rating, and reviewing in iTunes and anywhere else that you might listen to the show, which now, as of this week, does include iHeartRadio as well. If you have any questions, comments, you can leave them on the podcasting platform that you listen to the show on, whether it's iTunes or any of the others. You can also feel free to call and leave a voicemail or shoot a text to the show's phone number, which is 470-294-8191. That's 470-294-8191. And you could also send an email to liam at liamphotographypodcast.com. I want to thank you all once again for listening, and I will see you again in another seven days for episode 54.